Hello, and welcome to Industry Elites. On this podcast, Industry Elite's very own Natalie and Vicky are going to be interviewing business owners and individuals who have made their mark in their respective industries. Welcome to this episode of Industry Elites, where Vicky and I wanted to take a look at some common questions people might have before making any sort of commitments in the world of real estate. As individuals who are entering a new stage in life where they could purchase homes sooner rather than later, there are some questions that they need to be answered as well. We will look at what leads people to rent versus buy and how everyone can be comfortable making those commitments. Obviously, in different places around the world, this dynamic might change. So we also wanted to take this time to chat with our friend Alex in the UK, who's going to be talking about the renting versus buying climate there. Firstly, there's definitely stereotypes existing between buying versus renting, and ultimately everyone is trying to buy. In today's climate that might be changing due to people's lifestyles and their other financial commitments, buying a home may not be something that's on everyone's priority list. So obviously the housing market is a really big conversation with everybody today. And I think, Vicky, for you and I, it's something that we're really looking towards wanting to accomplish is buying that home for ourselves. But there's so many, I think, hurdles that we're going to have to overcome. What do you think? Definitely. Especially as millennials, it's a lot harder to kind of purchase a home, especially with the kind of the new rules in place. I think they don't make it easy by any means. No, they definitely don't. Another activity, I guess, that my boyfriend and I have created for ourselves is where you do that drive by in new neighborhoods and you look at all of these like nice homes or new buildings that they're putting up and you're like, oh yeah, I could definitely afford that. Or like, this would be a great place to live. And then you go home, you're looking at it online and you're like, oh yeah. Okay. Next joke. Like, let's look at another place like tomorrow or like the next day. And I don't know if it's leaving me more positive or it's putting more of a damper on an already negative situation. No, I feel you on that. Cause I was just loosely looking at houses. Obviously it's different when you actually go to look for what will actually be on the market at the time, but you know, just to get an idea of like what you can get for kind yeah, of the price sure. range. It's not looking very good. <laughs> no. It seems to be at least around here, the average decent house and or townhouse and or condo, mm-hmm. anything really. It's about 415000 plus. I feel like a minimum because anything that I've seen from like, let's say like a detached home that semi ready to live in, right? Like it's not, you need to do a full gut or a full renovation, you're looking at maybe a minimum like 700000 plus. And even that, I'm like, oh my goodness, this is next level crazy. And thinking like the amount of money you'd have to put into something else for a quarter of the living space you're in right now, that's obviously a very large commitment. Yeah, it's kind of a hard pill to swallow, especially too when you look at condos, for example, say it's 200000 well, your mortgage will be pretty low. So that's okay. But then they have all these condo fees. Most condo fees these days are like 500 to 600 bucks a month. So it kind of brings your mortgage way up almost double in some instances and those yeah those kind of act as i guess hidden fees because like you said even though the initial price might be lower but when you're adding all these additional costs then at the same time is it really worth it then you might as well just be in a spot of renting and saving up for something that a little bit more money but you're going to potentially see a better positive return yeah especially to some of these condo fees some of them do include your water bill or your heating bill or even some times your taxes but a lot of times they don't it's more so outdoor maintenance and kind of stuff like that you can't tell me cutting my little two and a half feet by three feet lawn costs 600 bucks a month 
just kind of stuff like that. Even if you were to take like snow removal into account, yeah. If you had a house, you could get the neighborhood kid twenty bucks every time it snowed. <laughs> it's true. I mean, hey, there you go. Start start them early with a good job. Honestly, that is totally my plan if I get a house. But like, here, kid. So obviously, when we were looking at this topic, we wanted to look at some stat revolving Canadians and purchasing homes and what the situation is going to look like for us upcoming. So one of the stats we found is that it's taking Canadians two to four times longer to save a 20% down payment. When you rent, all you have to come up with is first and last month's rent. And home ownership leads to a lot of other costs aside from mortgage payments. And when you buy real estate, you'll need to pay closing costs. So that just kind of gives us an overview of potentially what we're going to be looking at when it comes to how much money we're going to really have to put down, which is quite alarming. Yeah, especially kind of in this day and age, it's pretty hard to save. So the 20% down pay your house costs 500000 for easy math, which seems yep. to be kind of the average. You need $100,000 down. That's 20%. Oh, wow. Okay. So back to our generation. And I feel like the changing lifestyle of what people had before versus now, maybe yeah. I'm wrong, but hundred grand to have to just shell out. And be like, okay, here, yeah, here's the down payment for my house. Like, yeah, next joke. I can't honestly fathom how to save that unless you got some crazy amount of inheritance. Mm -hmm. You invested something and it just blew up or you won the lottery. Yeah. Or you actually found out you have some rich uncle and now you're a princess. But other than that, I don't know. I mean, that would be a dream. And don't think that I haven't thought that before. I'd be like, okay, hey, maybe there was something down the line that we missed. And uh, we could basically be royalty right now. But I think with our generation and maybe even generations following is that a lot of us are really into having experiences and living in the moment maybe more than people were of previous generations. So I think that also plays into a fact of how people are saving their money. Warranted, this isn't everybody. Obviously, I'm sure many individuals really have worked well so far in savings. But for the majority, with everyone's lives pretty much being tracked on Instagram, I can really see that being difficult that they can live a certain lifestyle of, oh, just go with the flow and let's go here, let's go there, but then also be such a great saver to have a hundred grand ready to go to the bank. Yeah, no, I agree. I feel like our generation definitely doesn't even think 24 hours ahead. We, we think that day and that's about it. The other side of that too kind of makes me laugh because I was thinking if we buy these things because we think that a house just isn't feasible. So all these like little things are that little dopamine hit that will get us through the day with our $7 lattes <laughs> and it's the dead of the end goal because we know it's so far off in the distance. But that's what's crazy though. So obviously with saving money would come investing and I think that around this time for us to consider investing our money would obviously be really ideal as opposed to waiting later in life for when it comes down to bigger purchases we need and then saving the money at that point. If we can save the money now, like they were saying, in one year's time each year for the next 10 years, if you put four grand towards certain investments, by the end, you could stop at like 35 50, 60 years from now, you could have such an accumulation of funds that you wouldn't even have to worry about anything. But like, who's thinking about that right now? That's the problem. Yeah, I think another thing of it too is like, we don't, we don't get taught this. Like we don't, I think like the only remote in relation math thing that I was taught in school that I actually held on to was how to find percentage and sales tax. The VAT used Pythagorean theorem, throwing that out there. It's something that 
other people do that we don't think we do regularly because we are never really taught about it. Well, agree for sure. I've read so many things saying that like our generation just will not retire. Kind of getting on the investment bandwagon would really help our cause with that. The one other stat that we did find is that when you buy your home, it's what's known as a guess for saving. If you aren't able to pay your mortgage, you'll find yourself on the street pretty quickly. It's far less likely that you'll end up splurging on avocado toast three times a week if you're having to pay that mortgage. So that forced saving really helps you build up equity and that long-term wealth over the years. So obviously from that point, you're hearing that by buying a home forces you to save versus thinking that buying a home is something that's not achievable. So we're getting those quick, those quick enjoyments that maybe only last us a short period of time versus that looking at that long-term. I definitely agree with that. Especially too, like it's the same, but it's not the same is since we've been in lockdown, I have been saving more money than I have in my entire life because I'm not going out buying, as the example was, avocado toast because I'm literally not going out. So it's kind of like forced savings in that sense because especially too, like I have a bad habit of clothes shopping all the time, but I need to try them on. So I'm not making like crazy orders online. I'm just not doing it. And it's really sad and it's hurting me on an emotional level, but. (laughs) It's true. Even though we're not in the office either, right? That's the one thing. You're using the resources you have at home. So instead of you have the option, we go to work and be like, okay, like let's go out for lunch. Just so you have that hour. That's more of that detox from the workspace. And then you go back to work to finish off your day versus at home. It's not really realistic all the time for all of us to be ordering something in or constantly leaving to go get something when we justify that. Okay. I have stuff at home now. I'm at home. So I really don't have any other excuses. So you're saving money in that way as well. Yeah, it's true. Not getting Starbucks every day. Definitely. I'm sure saves a bit as well. With iced coffees, I find myself making, I make some at home. So then I'm like, okay, I can still get a little taste of what I got before and it's free because that's my help. That is true. I think the next item that we had here is that to look at some of the stats that obviously we were talking about really, they were just really house focused, something that's a little bit more rent focused. So one of the points they had is that the fact that rent never ends where mortgage payments do. So while you may be able to find your dream home, you can't really find your dream apartment unless you were to plan to buy it outright. And then there's a chance that if your landlord decides to sell your property, your dream apartment suddenly becomes someone else's dream home and you're forced to move from the place you would have otherwise stayed in for years. So Vicki, you obviously are renting now. Maybe you can give us a little bit of your experience in terms of going to look for apartments and what that process has been like in terms of the landlord and your relationship with that. To be honest, apartment hunting is probably one of the most stressful, mundane tasks you'll ever do. So I've rented since college pretty much and I kind of got my first taste of it there because I moved to a college town I was trying to rent when everyone else was trying to rent at the beginning of the summer and there just wasn't enough inventory so if you went to view something which a lot of people weren't even viewing things that's how much in demand these things were wow so they're just like going signing it without actually even seeing it Mm-hmm. Because that's people, great. it was just more people than there was kind of, I guess, inventory, if that's what you want to call it. And a lot of instances, I would have appointments scheduled to go see somewhere because I refused to not look at it. But because so, you never know, especially student houses, student houses are a whole different level. And yeah, you have to go see them. I would have landlords literally cancel their appointments going someone signed the lease before I even saw it. The renting market right now, like everybody's renting. So to try to 
to lock down a place, you have to move. I know when we got this place, we literally showed up, did the tour. We had a money order in hand. We signed everything right then and there before we even left. We were like, this is everything. We like it. Please proceed. That way, we just locked it down right then and there. I think they had three more viewings after us. So we handed in our application, all that other jazz. And we still kept looking at apartments. That's how hardcore the rental wow. it is right now. And we must have looked at, I think, six different places, kind of from actual apartment buildings, high-rise apartment buildings, kind of independent renters. We saw some crazy ones. Part of the renting thing is there is some ups and downs. The nice thing is if there's ever an issue, generally speaking, it gets fixed within 24 hours. That's good. I mean, from what you've heard of the stereotypical things of renting and landlords, 24 hours seems like a, a decent number. Yeah, and also disclaimer with that too, I've always rented from property management groups. It's not just some guy's basement, which I think kind of sets you up for a better kind of relationship and expectations because then that way everything's by the book. It's not kind of a private renter. Funny story on maintenance. This one time, this was my first college apartment with my roommate. So we woke up in the morning and the bathroom ceiling was completely dipped down, maybe two and a half feet. And like completely completely rounded out and we're just standing there looking at it and I'm I probably have about a foot on my roommate at the time so being the smart person that I am I reach up and I touch the weird drooping ceiling oh no basically what happened at some point during the night was the neighbors above us toilet I guess started leaking and it just filled the ceiling with water and whatever else and it created this big bubble with the drywall and the paint and all that and I thought it was smart to touch it. Needless to say, I popped said bubble. And oh, no. All the drywall and all the water came down on top of us. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That was like a Monday morning and we're getting up to go to class. Like, all right. Okay, cool. Nice. But... I called my landlord. He had plumbers and drywallers in literally an hour after I called. It was fixed that day. And then I think the next day they came into paint because I had to let the drywall dry. That's crazy that that happened. But the fact that they were available so quickly and you were able to get in touch with them. So I know that in other property managements, sometimes what they have is where you can put in like work orders if stuff needs to be fixed or if you need to like pass on certain information that you need to get back. You need them to get back to you on, then you can do so via like an online portal. Is that something you guys have currently or is it more so like you have like the contact number and you're getting in touch with them that way? So I've moved a lot since school and uh, one apartment I've had we did have to fill out, you know, those forms where they're the three pieces of paper and it's like the yellow one, the pink one and the white one. And they all like transfer through. You yeah. had to fill out one of those. And then they would basically see this is like the back and forth horror stories of apartments. So this instance they took their time in getting back to me. And what had happened, I swear I live in good places too. This is just the curse (laughs) in which I have. So I wake up one morning, my kitchen sink is full of blacky green sludge. What? Oh my God. It was so backed up that there was literally straws and like little plastic uh, knives floating around in it, which makes me question humanity in a whole different level as to why Uh people are shoving that down the sink so it never like completely overflowed but it got really 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 close so i kept like bucketing it out and dumping in the bathtub and the landlord kept going oh the plumber's 
going to be an hour, then he's going to be two hours, then he's going to be tomorrow. Once the plumber came, I was kind of hanging out talking to him, and all he had to do was drain it. Like, it was literally like a 10-minute job, but the super didn't really feel that it was important, which kind of baffles me because if it did overflow... It would have completely ruined like cupboards and everything in the kitchen and possibly even leaked to the unit below me. So there's that horror story. But in my current apartment, if there's an issue, I just text her. I kind of say, hey, this is my issue. And she'll be because she lives on site. So she'll be up. Oh, wow. The hour pretty much. The one thing, though, from apartment living that kind of I think makes a lot of maybe not a lot, but makes some individuals nervous that you can't really control how other people are living around you. So whereas you might be leaving your place really really clean and you obviously have like a high standard of living other people might not be doing the same so that in effect could transfer over to you and your unit which is a little nerve-wracking now that you've heard from us let's move on to the second part of this episode with our guest alex niora on today's podcast of industry lead vicky and i are really excited as we have residential property manager alex niora with us today to talk about the ins and outs of renting in the uk and more specifically in london we'll also be debunking five myths when it comes to renting and talking about some common questions for first-time renters so thank you for joining us alex hi hi there thank you for coming on so how is quarantine treating you i'm really in the same situation as as everybody else. I can't really complain, actually. I live in a lovely flat and I live in uh, leafy suburbs in in West London. I have a a canal, woodland, nature reserve, all my doorstep. So, you know, and I'm working from home. I can work from home. It's not that bad for me, actually. I mean, I do want to get out of London, I guess, and have been restricted from doing that. But Otherwise, it's not been too bad on me personally, but I do really feel for people who've lost their jobs and I really feel for small businesses that have gone bust because not getting the clients right now. And I really wish that, I really hope that we'll emerge from this soon. Although I think that that will happen in terms of if you look at the curve, we're very much at the on the downward trend now. To be honest with you, we're really coming out of it now. So I think that's something to be positive about, hopefully. So we're in Canada and you're in the UK. So from what I've kind of seen from BBC World and such is that it the lockdown really hit kind of the UK hard. You guys had more kind of rules in place compared to the rest of the world at first. Have you seen that comparison for being in the UK or do you think it's comparable to the rest of the world and the news was just kind of hyping it up a bit? I think, well, the first thing to say is that the UK is very densely populated, particularly the Southeast and London and the UK. I mean, we are densely populated than elsewhere in Europe. I think we've exception to Malta or, uh, you know, just a tiny island. And there are parts of the UK that are rather sparsely populated, but particularly London, South East and big cities were quite densely packed. So bearing that in mind, we've had to socially distance because it's, it's very easy to come in across other people. Whereas I've been to Canada once, but not for some time. And I was really in the city areas. I would imagine that in Canada, it's very different and you're a lot more spaced out and perhaps not in the big cities. But I think talking about Canada, generally as compared with the UK generally you're a lot more sparsely populated and so it perhaps uh, you haven't had to have quite such stringent rules as we've had to have here having said that I know there are places in in Europe that have gone further where lockdown restrictions were even harder where you weren't allowed to leave the house or even exercise inside the the house I think in Spain and allowed to leave them and maybe Italy and, and France you weren't allowed to leave the house even to exercise for a while I mean all these 
cities are now being lifted and we're, we're slowly returning to normal. Conversely, if you look at Sweden, actually, Sweden never had official lockdown. So people in Sweden were able to, well, there was a voluntary one. So if people wanted to self-isolate, stay at home, they were able to do so, obviously. But there was never that government enforcement. You know, the schools were never closed. The restaurants and bars and cafes and gyms, etc., were never closed down officially. So it was a very different sort of environment there, actually. It's been a different response. And it's been interesting to see how that's played out in, in infection and mortality rates, actually. Yeah, I think it's definitely something to really have us take a second and think about the circumstances that we've all been we've all been put into. And hopefully now we're seeing that bright light at the end of the tunnel. And essentially, hopefully that's going to help us get there by doing all these things that the government is asking us of. In one respect, I think our jobs have also changed as well. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about how your job has altered, Alex. I've been fairly fortunate. I've had quite a lot of stability. Uh, my job is to manage and maintain residential estate. And I, I live on the site. I live there myself. And so it's been relatively easy for me. There have not really been any changes continued with on-site contractors that we normally use. The gardeners and cleaners have, have continued. The only thing really that I had to stop rather suspend was having the blocks repainted. But apart from that, I haven't really had any changes. I think if you look at the the property markets, by which I mean the sale and rental market, then yeah, I think they have taken a, a hit or rather there's been a slowdown because people have really been moving, obviously, while we've been in lockdown. But I think that will start to pick up now again as we emerge from the lockdown, as we emerge back into, I hesitate to use the word normality, but kind of get back to sort of where we were before. I think there will be permanent changes from, from it as well. I think a lot more people will be working from home, for example, but I think we will start to get back to, to normal soon. I say that rather optimistically, but <laughs> I think it has to happen because it has to happen for the economy, it has to happen for people's sanity. Yeah, it's kind of interesting, the fallout going forward from this, because I know colleges and universities here, the fall semester is going to be completely online. They're not even attempting to say that students are going to physically go back to school. So it's kind of interesting, I guess, going forward and what we will deem, as I too hate that saying now and everyone's saying the new normal, <laughs> but it's becoming, for lack of a better word, the new normal. So be interesting to see how that goes, especially here where we're at the very early stages. Like you still can't get a haircut or get your nails done or anything of the sort. You can pretty much just go to grocery stores, any retailer that has its own door. So you can't go to malls or anything, but you can go to like any shops that have an entrance on the street or anything like that now and hardware stores and stuff. But we'll get there, hopefully. Hopefully yeah. by the end of summer. That's actually pretty much where we're still at in the UK. You can't get your hair cut. Well, they've started to open some drive-throughs, like McDonald's drive-through and restaurant drive-throughs and things. You can't go into a restaurant and sit down and have a meal like you were able to previously. And generally, I think at the moment, it's still the case. I mean, I think some hardware stores are open, but generally only supermarkets and stores selling food basically are open. But you have queues of people waiting to get in because they have a strict, only so many people are allowed in the store at one time and then you all have to maintain a certain distance and it's quite strictly enforced. But again, speaking optimistically, I think, I hope that this is kind of going, getting back to some kind of normality where people can actually go and buy stuff and go, go and like interact with each other at some kind of level again. Having said that, at the same time, it's just been announced that I believe Monday or Tuesday next week, it's going to be compulsory in the UK to wear 
wear uh, masks on, tr- on public transport, which I think is pretty onerous. And, that uh, you know, there we go. That's the new rule. A lot of people already do. It's going to be compulsory. So that's interesting. Things are still being taken seriously, even though we are, as I've said, we're on the, the downward curve. As far as I can see emerging, we're coming out. There is a fear there might be a second wave. And I think that's maybe why the government's being cautious and why people are being cautious still. Definitely. I think that's all we can do at this point because there's not really a guideline for us to previously look into to be like, oh, yes, then when this happened, this is the steps that we took. Not necessarily because this is really one of the first times we've ever encountered something on such a world scale. So I know the one thing that is happening a lot here for us in Canada is that a lot of businesses have taken steps uh, in order to look futuristically. Okay, these are something that we're implementing in terms of our business, in terms of keeping people safe. And they've pushed that on, showing that to their employees or the customers or clientele, whoever is entering their building, their store, et cetera. So even if maybe your particular job hasn't changed, has the company or in the building sense sending anything out to your tenants or to their employees? Not, not really. I have asked the cleaners to be more fastidious in, if that's the right word, in basic in their attention to cleaning and to detail to, for example, to uh, wipe down all the door handles with antibacterial wipes and that kind of thing and just to be that little bit more careful paying attention to detail. I am a perfectionist. I, I'm going to put it out there. I'm a bit OCD about certain things and, and actually that makes me really good at my job because I can spot, I'm very visual as well, I can spot things at a distance very quickly and then I act on them fairly quickly as well. So, you know, I get those repairs done. I'm Everybody locally knows that knows me as the guy who picks up all the litter, which is why the state looks spotless all the time because I will cross the road to pick up a piece of litter. What I think what makes me so good at my job because I don't let anything slip. I kind of always stay on top of things and, and I pay that attention. Are you familiar with the word snagging? No. Like you're like close. Like snag? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, so it's a kind of colloquial term in the UK. And it is someone, the snagger is someone who, so you like, for example, you have, have your house redecorated or you have an office refitted or whatever. The snagger is the guy who goes in afterwards and checks all the details to make sure that little bit of skirting board, has the paint job been done accurately? Was there some paint splashed somewhere where it wasn't supposed to? And they kind of sort out all the little little bits at the end that were not quite taken care of. That's kind of, I think, how I think of myself and how I, a lot of the work that I do is kind of just that attention to detail, making sure that everything's, you know, all the T's are crossed and all the I's are dotted, as it were. I guess at the same time, you know, it, sometimes it can be challenging and frustrating doing my job. I guess one of the things that you never quite know who's going to contact you when. So it's always, you know, they say you wait for a bus for half an hour and then three come along at once. Sometimes it can be a bit like that. For example, recently we've had a very dry spell in the UK. So we've had literally about one month of no rain whatsoever. Oh, it wow. rain, rained yesterday for the first time and it hasn't been particularly hot, but it's been it just very dry. So I've literally had to, and the gardens have been doing this as well, but the gardeners aren't on site every day. So when the gardeners aren't on site, I do it. Just drag out all this and because uh, it's quite a large site, I have to put those hoses out in rotation. And it's quite, it's not heavy, but it's it's a physically demanding work because you're having to drag the hoses out, set them up, move them around every half an hour just to keep things alive, basically, so they don't die from, from lack of water. And I was really jumping for joy when it rained yesterday. I was <laughs> clapping my hands. It was brilliant. <laughs> I don't have to do any more of the watering for a while. So, Alex, the 
one thing we really want to touch on, just because obviously you would know, you would know a lot about this market as you are helping people to live their everyday lives in it. But the one facts we we're kind of checking out was in terms of really what is the demand for renting when it comes to the UK? And obviously it's showing that the demand is rising and that home prices are becoming less affordable and less financially prudent. And there's obviously growing concerns in terms of who's owning a home maybe and who's not. So I think there's a lot of different speculations that people can take from looking at that and the reasonings why people are maybe renting versus why people are buying. And I think we have similar alignments here in Canada as well. So one of the things we just wanted to touch on and get a little bit of your perspective on was some of these stigmas in terms of, I believe we came up with five and just getting your perspective. Sure. All right. Obviously around the world, each country and within the individuals residing within it have different experiences when it comes to buying and renting properties and homes. So from what we've read and kind of gathered through the internet, there seems to be a lot of stigma around what renting actually consists of in the UK compared to most places. So we want to take the time to have you debunked some of these missing misconceptions that we discovered and tell us your perspectives and how people can make the most informed decisions when researching renting. All right. So the first one that we had found was renting only exists for those who cannot afford to buy. So what are your thoughts on that, Alex? Well, that's not true. Obviously, a lot of people rent because they, for example, have a temporary job. So they're moving to a particular area, but only temporarily. So they've still got their the home that they own, but they want to rent somewhere and maybe rent out their, their home that they bought and own while they're not living there. So that's perhaps one way far. More broadly, I think, yes, it's true that traditionally the UK has had a higher proportion of homeowners rather than renters. The proportion has always been a bit higher. Why that's the case, I don't know. There was that saying, an Englishman's home is his castle, and maybe there's been that sort of homeownership pride culturally in, in the UK. And also compared with, for example, continental Europe and elsewhere in the world, the UK has a relatively high, has had traditionally a relatively high proportion of houses. In other words, you know, two-story traditional houses rather than apartment blocks. And so that's maybe part of it as well. But yes, I think that's a traditional cultural thing there. No, I think increasingly more people are renting. I wouldn't say whether that's necessarily a good thing. It's just, it just represents a shift, I think, in terms of, of the culture, demographics of, of the UK that we're now seeing. Yeah, very true. Do you think it's mostly millennials elves rent or is it all scale any individual? Yes, younger people, students, obviously have always been a, a big part of the rental market for obvious reasons because, you know, students go to study at university to live away from home and they have to rent. But equally, you know, migrant workers coming from abroad to tend to rent more than uh, some buy, obviously, as well, that their home, that they settle for, for quite some time, but many rent. I guess there's no one particular demographic, there's no one particular group of people that rents more than, than others, but generally be younger people. Yes, that's the same reflected in other parts of the world and in Canada particularly. Say for us, I guess as a millennial, it is honestly impossible to buy a home, like a starter home that does not yeah. exist anymore here. It's kind of like you have to live at home for forever and then eventually move out in your mid-30s. <laughs> I see where you're coming from. Yeah, of course. And I think, you know, here it's the same. Sorry, yeah, increasingly the average age at which people buy their home is getting higher and higher. 
to people who are living with their parents and to their 30s and that's really common but I think because maybe there's in the UK because there's a traditional culture of, of an expectation to buy and, and sort of even now sort of buying your own home is something that people a lot of people aspire to and, and encourage there are all kinds of schemes like that to help people so for example shared ownership schemes where you know typically people get together with a group of friends or maybe their siblings or other members of their family and buy a home together you know that's really common obviously parents always help their kids with down payments on mortgages yeah, it's different how we have obviously different setup in terms of what would be beneficial and what might be a little bit more of a hindrance. But the next myth that we found, and I think this might be quite common in terms of renters and what their outlooks or previous stigmas might be, and that would all landlords are bad landlords. So thoughts on that? Ah, well, I'm also a landlord. So <laughs> I'm obviously a really, really good landlord. No, <laughs> yes, there you go. No, no. Obviously, some landlords aren't scrupulous and they were do necessary repairs they will they will try and squeeze as many people into their properties as possible we have this thing in the uk called homes of multiple occupation and they actually have to be licensed government so if you have basically multiple families sharing the same washing and kitchen facilities then it's classed as a multiple households and it's classed as a home of multiple occupation uh, broadly speaking you know, that has to be licensed but you know some landlords will try and get away and, and not license them or just like get away with not abiding by health and safety regulations. But then they always run the risk that they'll get caught and then fined. And so, you know, that's always a risk with them. There are a lot of very good landlords as well and who take their responsibilities seriously. And to be honest with you, the recent changes in the law haven't really helped landlords they've helped tenants so now we know you know for example when i get a deposit from my tenant i have to pay it into a government guaranteed scheme so i don't keep that money myself in my account and when the tenancy ends very difficult for me to retain any of that deposit money even if the tenants have trashed the property because then i have to prove that and that's difficult so actually you know and it's also a lot harder now to evict tenants for example i could give tenants two months month's notice to leave the property because I want to sell it or whatever, uh, they might refuse. And then I would have to go to court and get them evicted. And then I have to wait several months for the court to come to a decision. And then a couple of other months for bailiffs to come to a bit. It's actually tenants don't get such a hard ride as you think. It's a bit more balanced than, oh, all landlords are bad. Obviously, some are, and some still break the rules, but it's increasingly hard now to do that. So, And a lot of landlords don't want to. They are in there to, they want a mutually beneficial relationship with their tenants, who they want the, to pay them the rent every month. And and so, you know, they've got to look after their, their, their property and, and keep up to it and, and make sure that, you know, all the repairs are carried out, that tenants are living in properties that are fit for, you know, fit for habitation. I would debunk that straight away. Yeah, I think it's good to always look at the both perspectives. And like you said, it's not always that they're always the bad landlords that like you mentioned, there could be bad tenants and that really does potentially balance itself out. I think for maybe first time renters, the reasonings that maybe they're getting that stigma is because you do hear sometimes those scary stories of, okay, when you're renting, you signed a contract, you're locked in, and then you might be stuck with a place that you didn't realize had all these issues that, okay, well, if something were to get fixed, they're not really coming to fix it. Or then, like you said, at least you're giving someone notice in terms of, okay, you're they're unable to be there any longer. But if someone's not giving their tenant notice and then the next week they have to be out, those are really difficult things.
things to handle. Is there a difference in a type of rental that's offered to them? Like I was reading in terms of like a private landlord versus maybe yours. Is it a more established business? Is that a difference there you've seen? Tenancy agreements in the UK are pretty much fixed by law. So they have to, you can't have one that for more than 12 months. So you would have to, can typically most tenancy agreements, either six months or 12 months. If you want to, you can renew that agreement afterwards, but effectively it would be a new agreement you would have to make. It could be on the same terms, but you would have to sign a, a new agreement. So as the site manager, you obviously have a good idea of the items in place between you and your tenants to keep a really healthy relationship. And I just wanted to highlight that if there is that real difference with those who are a little bit more of a private, private landlord, private renter in terms of maybe the stipulations they have in place. And that's maybe where people could see the negativity coming from. Maybe it's not from established businesses like your company and yourself. It might be from those individuals who are more so of that private aspect and where more of those horror stories are coming from. And there seems to be a stigma with renting is just throwing away your money. It is never cost effective. Uh, would you kind of agree with that statement or do you think it's just kind of situational based upon the renter's needs? I would say it's there is a market for people to rent property. If there wasn't a market, people wouldn't do it. But there is a, a market for uh, people to, to rent because they can't afford to buy their own place, but they need somewhere to live or they are living somewhere temporarily or they're students or whatever. Landlords can come in and provide the supply to that demand, if you like. So it works. And obviously the problems come when there's really when there's and too much demand and not enough supply. And then that tips the market over in favor of landlord. And in that situation, you can have problems arise when, you know, some landlords behave unscrupulously because if you've got lots of people needing somewhere to live, only so many places where they can live, then obviously landlords can afford to rake up prices and they get the cream of the coppers in because their choice of tenants. So then that potentially can cause problems. So what you need to have is to have enough housing supply, I guess, in the market accommodate, literally accommodate tenants. So I guess kind of another point, it was on our list is the fourth point, but I feel like it kind of rolls with this one. Another stigma with renting is that it's kind of dead money because you're not paying into like equity of a home. Would you agree with that as partial with your first statement or do you think that's a whole different kind of conversation? Yes. So that is true. If you rent, you are effectively throwing away part of your your wages every month, I guess, that you're never going to see back. I guess that is a reason why people choose in the long term to buy because then, you know, they become homeowners. But, you know, even if you buy a home, then most people can't afford to buy a, a home outright so they would get a mortgage and if you get a mortgage well okay you can pay off that mortgage but you're charged interest on the mortgage as well from the bank so from the lender so you're paying off more than you you learn some people even take out interest only mortgages where they're only paying off the interest so that's kind of like renting because they're throwing away that money again even if you buy your place your own home even in that situation you can still be making those monthly mortgages mortgage repayments and actually effectively, as you put it, sort of throwing that money down the drain and not seeing it again because you're only paying off the interest on, on the loan. Or you could still be paying off out of the capital on the home as well, but you'll still be paying interest on that. So, but obviously it's still a better position than renting. You've got to buy somewhere where the mortgage, even if you're repaying the mortgage, yeah, okay, so you're paying off that amount every month, but it's still a lot less than you would be paying if you were renting. Definitely something 
something to consider. I think on our final point, just wanting to get your perspective on it, is that renting is a lot more of a hassle than owning your own home. In a certain sense, yes, because A, the financial burden, B, it's not your own home, so you can't do whatever you want with the home. You can't If you wanted to paint all the wall pink, your landlord probably wouldn't allow you to do that. You know, you're going to be more tied down rules and regulations because it's not your home. So you'll be restricted as to how much you can do with it. So you may still have your own furniture and bring in your own things into the home. You won't have full ownership to do whatever you want with the flat. So I guess it would be more burdensome. And that at the same time, some people may choose to rent for various reasons, again, because they are to move temporarily. A lot of people sometimes will get temporary jobs in a different part of the country, go and move there. And while they move, they will rent out the home that they own. They might quite enjoy having a change of scenery, living elsewhere in a different home in a different part of the country and or different part of the world for that matter. And they might quite enjoy that. I guess a lot of it comes down to, to money and economics and what can you afford and, and the system. And that was a very good conversation and uh, we thank you for having you on the podcast today. Yes, thank you. Thanks so much. All right, have a lovely day.